Welcome to UCLA Extension's Business Insights with Roger Ternaden, where we highlight hot topics and underlying economic trends useful to you. This week marks our 100th podcast. I know some of you have shown incredible interest by staying with us the entire four years. Thank you. When I began this podcast, we were in the initial months of COVID, with no one really sure that we would face years of -of out-of-control global death and disease like the 1908 pandemic or long-term shutdowns in travel, business, and family gatherings or even other outcomes too difficult to contemplate at the time. At that time, it seemed that everyone had unique opinions and fears with media reporting and government actions pretty much all over the place. In brief, it was not helpful. Fortunately, for many reasons known a year or two later, we didn't face the worst possible of all futures. Since I'm a business person trained in global economics and finance, my contributions were aimed to better navigate the many uncertainties by evaluating the constant streams of data and filtering out the media noise and hype. I've tried to be as helpful as possible and hope that has been the case. Today's podcast attempts to bring you up to date on U.S. economic and financial market expectations and then to suggest the impact China is having in organizing a BRICS block of countries to counter, if not replace, Western country leadership. And the word leadership is not a benign word, as it includes access to global energy, raw materials, and ultimately economic growth and control of supply chains. And that includes shipping lanes and trade routes. On this approximate four-year journey, I've attempted to identify the small number of trends and connections that largely determine our future economic threats and opportunities, trying my best to focus on those that largely determine our future lifestyles, for better or for worse. In the initial podcasts, my focus began with the very largest money managers, central banks, and global leaders who, in total, substantially determine bond, stock market, and real estate price trends, as well as future inflation, recession, and depression risks. In our country's 250-year or so history, we've seen more than 50 major economic crises, which are subjects of many books and research articles. Of course, these events are documented and analyzed years after the events take place, with each event itself somewhat unique in causation. Personally, my focus is not really causation, as giving credit to one or more causes requires even more research, model building, testing. None of these activities is particularly helpful when one is faced with an immediate and rapidly changing set of challenges, the newest crisis. My preference is to identify as rapidly as possible consequences, regardless of causation. Maybe the dinosaur extinction event serves to define this difference. There are endless debates about the causation of the large asteroid hitting the Earth, but the consequences of the asteroid hit provide many learning and risk prevention opportunities. More recently, the causation of the 2007-2009 Great Recession will be debated for years, but the consequences of large numbers of home foreclosures provided many lessons on credit management, banking, and shadow banking system vulnerabilities, ripple effects, personal and business bankruptcies, knee-jerk political reactions, and so forth. The list is pretty, pretty long. 
Every crisis has its own determinants, but in my opinion, the consequences of crises do have much in common. As Mark Twain reportedly said, quote, history never repeats itself, but it does often rhyme, unquote. My own global experiences and research is in agreement with this quote. More to the point, today's crises in commercial real estate are likely more a function of COVID-inspired work from home, but don't underestimate the present and upcoming consequences of the Fed keeping interest rates close to zero for almost two decades and then taking them up to double or even triple some of the rates in a period of a year or so. The consequences include an entire generation of money managers, investors, bankers, real estate developers, and pretty much everyone else who borrowed or loaned short-term funds for investment in long-term assets to take advantage of the low interest rates that were the short-term rates. It was fun while it lasted, and the whole global financial system enjoyed borrowing at close to zero and investing to earn a few percentage points more. Now all the short-term borrowers have their long-term assets, buildings, bonds, stocks, land for development, houses, etc. And their short-term money they borrowed has to be refinanced at twice or even three times the prior interest rate. Again, the long-term assets don't go away. They're still there. The long-term liabilities are still there. The debts in buying those long-term assets are still there. Many investments that earned a financial return two years ago, five years ago, ten years ago or more are big losers now as they must be refinanced at much higher interest rates or alternatively face defaults and foreclosures, which once again creates banking crises in addition to personal and corporate bankruptcies, ultimately resulting in layoffs and increasing unemployment. Today, all of this is compounded by chronic inflation coming more and more from energy price increases and higher wage rates. I can't in a few minutes summarize our prior 99 podcasts, but they are still available. For those with a special interest in understanding how decades of work and education helped steer our listeners toward the important trends, while ignoring the 24-hour so-called news cycle, which is both incomplete and heavily biased, while remaining humble and modest, knowing that real life throws up many unexpected curveballs, I'd like to share how, in my own mind, that these podcasts created expectations of major trend changes well before these trends emerged. In other words, a number of key trend changes were identified as upcoming and explained months in advance to help prepare us for our careers and investments, ultimately preparing us for our future lifestyles. Here are some of my most important takeaways that I now present to you again for serious consideration. One, official government economic, financial, and employment data are at best like looking in the rearview mirror and at worst are misleading in major ways. Inflation, in terms of its reporting, is covered up by hedonic pricing changes made by federal government reporting departments and from time to time by major changes inside the indices themselves. In other words, groups of bureaucrats looking at the data actually change the data and they reweight the data. And it's obviously with the idea of reporting lower and lower inflation. Actual inflation experienced by most American families reported by private research entities is two to three times the official inflation rate and has been two or three times for years. 
If you question how a family of two generations ago could have had one head of household wage earner, two children in school, own a home, get by with one car, and still save 15% or more of their household savings, just think about the impact of 4 to 5% inflation. What impact that would have over the past 40 or 50 years. This actual 4 to 5% inflation, in my view, is an environment in which our government has reported during this period an official inflation rate close to 2% a year. Some have mitigated this unfriendly financial time period by growing their annual earnings at more than 10% or more a year for 40 years, but most of us have not and are suffering from this compression of rapidly growing expenses versus their incomes while being fed the line that inflation has been under control for the whole time period. It has not been. Number two, the Federal Reserve has been creating new dollars to buy government debt for many years, but these actions went into overdrive during the COVID years. The Fed has replaced China and Japan as the largest owners of U.S. debt securities and became the major buyer of U.S. debt as China steadily has decreased their ownership of these same securities for years now. Today, the implications of the Fed actions are all-encompassing. Our podcasts warned well in advance of higher inflation and higher interest rates during the many months that the Fed and media trumpeted that there was no inflation issue ahead and that if there would be, it would only be transitory. Number three, the unemployment reports are highly flawed. The birth death adjustments account for most of the increases reported. These adjustments are made by government officials who obviously have a priority of supporting the political leadership. Additionally, many jobs that have been created are part-time jobs, and many part-time employees cannot find desired full-time employment, to say nothing of the income that is not keeping up with the inflation rate, given the fact that many have two or three part-time jobs, and that supports their living. Number four, the understated inflation and overstated jobs can lure many into false security. Understated inflation overstates real economic growth. For example, a small increase in government-reported price inflation could move the entire economic picture that's been reported from years from a 1% to 2% real growth across the economy to a negative growth rate. In other words, we may well have been in a real recession for a lot of years and still counting. Is only a small amount of actual inflation that is covered up or not reported. I don't know about you, but for me that's kind of scary. As many people seem to think the U.S. economy has been growing for many years, and quite possibly it stalled years ago and has been in a stagnation mode. Number five, in recent months, this podcast has asserted that official inflation has declined, with the decline largely a function of lower energy prices. As you know, several months ago, I presented the argument that due to China's recovery, which is itself full of issues, including their own real estate bust that's in progress, but China's recovery and Saudi Arabia's voluntary oil production cutbacks would result in oil prices again on the increase. And for the past couple of months, that has certainly been the case. Despite the U.S. administration selling the majority of our strategic petroleum reserve to keep prices in check for the past six or eight months, the emerging long-term trend is once again higher and higher oil prices. Please note in the past several months that oil has indeed started its new increase. It's up 25 or 30 percent or so in the past two to three months. Not only is oil back in an uptrend, but so is coal. 
China continues to add to its dependence on coal-powered electric plants. My point is that inflation is back on an uptrend as oil prices continue up and will likely exceed $100 a barrel again by year-end. That's my view. For the West Coast, expect $7 a gallon gas sooner rather than later, and for the East Coast, with an El Nino winter, expect much higher heating bills. And the same goes for Europe. Number six, average new car prices are approximately $48,300 now, up from $37,700 just four years ago. Number seven, the Fed's preferred PCE, core services, ex-housing, their inflation index they prefer, actually reported in the July period, it was up a half a percent for the month, which is the largest since January. Again, a return to an inflation trend, in my view. Number eight, the U.S. politicians are once again wrong-footed, as they now are now having to agree that nuclear power and natural gas-fueled power plants not only cannot be mothballed, but must be counted upon for adequate energy. This is a repeat from a prior podcast, but over the past decade, global economies have spent two to four trillion dollars to go green, but the global energy production has only moved down from 82% to 81% in the dependency on fossil fuels to meet global energy demands. Going green is good, but it's not having the impact presented by many advocates. Maybe much more time is needed to develop substantial alternative energy sources, much more money, many decades. I don't know, but it's not working out very well. Number nine, so far this year, over 200 companies have filed for bankruptcy. The top 10 companies alone employed 200,000 people. Number 10, the commercial real estate market with office space is getting worse, and that has been expected. From the time that a office building becomes less occupied, it's not noticeable that that's creating a problem because the financing has been in place for at least a year and the rent payments are being made out of a certain amount of surplus that's been generated over the years. But as the commercial real estate market gets worse, the office real estate particularly, also shopping centers though, gets worse, finances can't be made up for so easily. The underlying loans need to be refinanced at much higher rates, and the cushion of surplus safety funds has been utilized, and that's kind of where we are now. So as commercial real estate gets worse, it's going to have an impact on the banking sector, particularly the small and medium-sized community banks and the savings and loans. Number 11, Challenger Gray and Christmas major employment resources consulting firm announced that hiring plans are now, so far this year, at a 20-year record low. These are plans for hiring new employees. So the new jobs market has been dropping rapidly in the past few months. New plans for jobs are dropping to a two-decade low. And we also see that at the federal and state level, withholding taxes are dropping very rapidly. And these are withholding taxes on salaries. So it should be no surprise as layoffs increase, unemployment's increase, that uh, household earnings are going down rapidly across the country. And that could be measured in part by the decreases in the withholding taxes received by the federal and local governments. Number 12, buying a house today costs $33,000 a year on the average, which is 46% of pre-tax median household income. On an after-tax basis, homeowners are spending 70% of their income on home payments. 
That's unsustainable. Add to that average car payments are $733 a month and average used car payments are $550 a month. Both of these are up by over 30% since pre-COVID. Interest rates on used cars are nearing 15%. Credit card rates are nearing 25%. Number 13, household savings, despite all the money that was pumped into the government by stimulus programs, are now back to pre-COVID levels. The excess savings is gone. Number 14, the ISM index has recorded its 12th month below 50. And numbers below 50 represent negative growth. Number 15, 30 to 40 percent of houses that have been bought this year are by investors in groups and they've been bought for rentals. You can think about that however you like, but that has an impact on not only house prices and keeping house prices relatively high as personal demand goes down but also keeping rental prices fairly high. Number 16 just reported in the past several days, all categories of earners, of wage earners, are now living, importantly, desperately paycheck to paycheck. Until recently, the highest end of the wage earners reported not living paycheck to paycheck, but now that category is also in this unfortunate situation. So in this 100th episode, I am a bit bold, and I'll give fair warning that some of these items are quite controversial, but I feel that they are well documented. If and one can look for the data, one will find it. Let's move on to the global economic environment, again focusing on changes in trends and relationships, not causation. Today's global subject is China. As you may have noticed, China's leader has set a high priority on organizing the BRIC countries as a counterweight to the West. China, in August, led the BRIC summit in South Africa. The chairman personally attended this summit, but then announced he would not attend the G20 summit. So in my view, he made a choice. Not a surprise. As China's treasury holdings continue down month after month, China is redeeming the bonds that they own with the U.S. And going back several years ago, they held bonds and U.S. government debt obligations that totaled about $1.4 trillion. That total is now down to around $800 billion and dropping each month. China continues to increase the rhetoric on taking control of Taiwan. More on that in a minute. China has placed export controls on key rare earth materials, and these rare earth materials are key for electric automobile batteries, as well as cell phones, as well as important electronic equipment. China controls the electronic vehicle battery industry and effectively controls many of the raw materials, including cobalt mines in Africa. China is strongly supporting Russia as a BRICS member, and is not coincidentally a major importer of Russian crude oil, as is India. A note on BRICS. At the BRICS meeting, an agreement was made to admit new countries to basically double the size of the BRICS impact. They've agreed to admit Argentina, Egypt, Iran, Saudi Arabia, United Arab Republic, and Ethiopia. But importantly, another 35 or so countries have indicated an interest to join BRICS. And the BRICS expansion now is at the point where the BRICS countries control almost 30% of the global domestic product, about 46% of the global population, 43% of global oil production, and about 25% of all global exports. With that, I would like to ask you to give a listen to a recent meeting with the Hudson Institute's China Center. 
And this is a presentation by Kyle Bass on Chairman Jinping, Xi Jinping's preparation for war. Kyle Bass is an American investor and founder of Conservation Equity Management, a Texas-based private equity firm focused on environmental sustainability. He is also the founder and principal of Heyman Capital Management, a Dallas-based hedge fund focused on global events. Going back a few years in 2008, Bass successfully predicted and effectively bet against the U.S. subprime mortgage crisis by purchasing credit default swaps on subprime securities, which in turn increased substantially in value when the real estate bubble burst. As a manager of the Coalition for Affordable Drugs, Bass challenged the validity of 28 pharmaceutical corporations' patents, claiming that he wanted to invalidate weak patents, imposing extra costs on consumers, thus making drugs covered by those patents more affordable if he could win. Bass was the recipient of the 2019 Foreign Policy Association Medal for his responsible internationalism. He's a lifetime member of the Council on Foreign Relations and a founding member of the Committee on the Present Danger, in other words, China. And I am putting in the SoundCloud page and the UCLA Extension webpage the link to his YouTube. And this is very recent. YouTube is a bit on the long side because there's a question and answer session after his presentation, but I would invite you to listen to the 40 or so minutes, which will give you a very well thought out, very researched point of view on China and what he views as upcoming changes in the relationships between China and the West. Thank you for your attention. Thank you for helping me appreciate the 100th podcast. As always, I look forward to hearing from you, and I continue to counsel to be careful, avoid new debt, and create household accounts that are more in cash and outside of the volatility of the stock and bond market accounts. Thank you again. Be sure to email us at rtornadin at uclaextension.edu on more specific questions, which we will answer either personally or select as part of our future podcast. Hosted by Business and Legal Programs Director Roger Tornadin. This podcast is presented by UCLA Extension and produced by Jamie Moss at Studio 10960. These podcasts are made for educational purposes and are not financial advice. The goal is to educate and provide resources on focused economic and job trends with the latest support research so that you can make more informed financial and career decisions that best suit your personal needs. UCLA Extension offers more than 5,000 online and in-classroom courses taught by over 2,000 leading practitioners to help you get from here to there. For more information on this podcast or our financial and legal programs, please check us out at www.uclaextension.edu. We know it's about your life, not just your money.